0: For a number of weeks, I've been speaking on the doctrine of scripture, and today I'm going to wrap it up, Lord willing. But let's review first some of the, the themes we've hit as we talk about the doctrine of scripture. First of all, we started with revelation. Revelation. God is a revelational God. He reveals himself through creation, through providence, through conscience, through miracles, and through Jesus Christ. And of course, he has also revealed himself in his word, spoken through the prophets and handed down to us. And remember that he is a revelational God because he is a relational God. He has created us to know him, and he has given us his word so we can know him. Second point we made was the Bible is inspired. We talked about inspiration. The Bible is God-breathed. It has been breathed out by God to us. And it is fully and completely God's word in all its words and all its ideas. Next, we talked about truthfulness. Truthfulness. God is truth. And because he is truth, he speaks truth, and his word is truth. Inerrancy. And inerrancy is related to truthfulness, but it's expressed in a negative way. It is without error. Paul Feinberg said this, Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known... The Bible, in its original manuscripts and properly interpreted, will be shown to be true and never false in all that it affirms, whether related to doctrine, ethics, or the social, physical, or life sciences. Next, we talked about the power of God's Word. We talked about Romans 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Next, authority. Authority. As God's word, the Bible has authority over us, and all other claims to truth. It can tell us what to believe and how to act. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. When you disobey Scripture, you're disobeying God. When you obey Scripture, you're obeying God. And then last time, we talked about clarity. Clarity. Scripture was meant to be understood. The things that God requires us to understand are simple, direct, and clear. And these things are not reserved for a rare spiritual elite. So we've looked at all those in past weeks. And I want to get to the sufficiency of Scripture. But first, let's talk about the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. Certainly anyone who claims to be a Christian would claim that Scripture is necessary to teach us the things we need to know from God. But it is not necessary for everything we can know about God remember Psalm 19.1, says the heavens are declaring or telling of the glory of God <clears throat> and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So we can know something of the glory of God, the power of God, by looking at nature. Listen to Acts 14. And Paul is speaking here and he says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And so these people, even without the light of God's word, saw the light of God's goodness in the way that he sent rains from heaven fruitful seasons, and so forth, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 says that that which is known about God is evident within them, that is, the men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so again, we can see things about God in nature, and it leaves us without excuse. Turning over to Romans 2, we can also know something about right and wrong apart from Scripture. Romans 2, 14 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So, non-believers have the conscience given by God to them, and that helps them understand something, at least about what God expects of them, without them even knowing. It's a reflection of God's law. But, while Scripture is necessary, um, and we, we have this, this light from from other uh, places, uh, this, the Confession says this, the 1689 Confession says, "...although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation." So the general revelation outside of Scripture is clear enough to condemn us for unbelief, but not enough to save us. You can't go sit under a tree somewhere and, and meditate and come to God's uh, salvation plan just by looking at nature or by looking inside yourself. So we, we say the Scripture is necessary. We ask ourselves, then, how is Scripture necessary? Well, first of all, Scriptural truth is necessary for us to be saved. Recall Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, starting verse 13, says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So we must hear the word of God to believe in Jesus Christ. In Paul's time, they had the preaching of the apostles, before the New Testament was written, but in our time, we have the apostolic message handed down to us in the Bible and without the knowledge of Christ found in the Bible, we cannot hear the gospel. So scripture is necessary for us to be saved, but also scriptural truth is necessary for us to be sanctified. Scriptural truth is necessary for us to be sanctified. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.3, that Jesus quoted himself. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. In order for us to live... The righteous Christian life, we must live it according to God's word. Turn to First Peter chapter one. First Peter 1, starting verse 23. First Peter 1: 23: "You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Going on to chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So it is by the milk of the word by which we grow in respect to salvation. So scriptural truth is necessary for us to be saved. It's also necessary for us to be sanctified. We are born again through the word of God, verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. We are born again through the living and enduring word of God, and we grow by God's word, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. So there's the necessity of scripture. Scripture. Let's look now at the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. So we go from asking, is the Bible necessary, to asking, is the Bible enough? Is it sufficient? Now, what does sufficiency mean? Listen again to the 1689 Confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience— The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. John Piper says this, The sufficiency of Scripture means that we don't need any more special revelation, We don't need any more inspired, inerrant words. In the Bible God has given us, we have the perfect standard for judging all other knowledge. End quote. So, being God's word, the Bible has no authorities over it, and it judges all other authority claims. Now, if you've studied church history, you know that the debate over the sufficiency of Scripture was a key part of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church claimed authority over scriptural interpretation and also elevated church tradition to the level of scripture. The reformers used the Latin term sola scriptura or scripture alone to explain their belief that they need believe no doctrine that is not contained in scripture and all other teaching and authority must submit itself to scripture. So we can think of sola scriptura, scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture being really interchangeable terms. Remember what Martin Luther said of the Diet of Worms in 1521, where he was told to recant his teaching. He said this, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Now, of course, attacks on the sufficiency of scripture, weren't limited to Luther's time. They've always been with us since Satan tempted Eve to go beyond God's word. Just to take some recent examples, some say we must have the latest and greatest marketing techniques to get people into church and to keep them there. Biblical preaching is not enough to fill pews. Maybe you have to entertain people to keep them in the door. So as long as church is fun, people will stay. Remember, there was a, a sign I mentioned I saw outside a church years ago. It said, have fun in church or your money back. That's not the approach that, that we would take here, for sure. Some say that beyond scripture, you must have signs and wonders to show the power of God. Or we must have words from the Lord that is some new special revelation, some new prophecies or impressions directly from God. Or maybe it's naive to think that you can help someone to change sinful behaviors with the Bible alone. You must use the latest techniques of psychology to really help people. Or, to take another example, you must have women in the pastorate. This is becoming an issue again at the Southern Baptist Convention. Maybe only male pastors was fine in the first century, but we've moved past that now. Perhaps they might take a more spiritual-sounding approach. Women are gifted, too, and so we must be able to use their gifts in the service of the church. And so if a woman's a a a gifted teacher, preacher, we must have her in the pulpit. But against these trends, and many others we could mention, we must stand on the firm foundation of Scripture alone. So Scripture is sufficient. But we can then ask ourselves, how is Scripture sufficient? And just as we talked about Scripture necessary for us to be saved, it's also sufficient for us to be saved. Recall Second Timothy three fifteen. Paul says, From childhood you, Timothy, have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul in Romans one sixteen said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at Ephesians one thirteen. Paul says here, in Him that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear the truth, this gospel, you believe the gospel, and having believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit. And then James 1, James 1 verse 18. in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures so in this this picture god brings forth these ones who are saved by the word of truth that's what we need to be saved that's all we need to be saved what about miracles how important are miracles in our faith and our salvation turn back to luke 16 We talked about this some months ago when we looked at this passage. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in Hades suffering torment, but he wants the the truth to get to his family. And he's speaking here of this rich man in Hades, says to Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, that is Lazarus for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment so that sounds good if somebody if you were visiting or you're visited by a ghost saying uh, hey believe in Christ otherwise you'll be suffering a torment you might think that would be enough to save somebody but Abraham said verse 29 they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them but he said no father Abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead they will repent But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So if you're speaking to an unbeliever and they say, well, if God really existed, he would prove it to me by doing this great miracle. Maybe uh, some thunder in the sky or, or some great healing. Some other great unassailable sufficient miracle, God could do that. Or maybe even a Christian who doubting, say, God, give me this sure, certain miracle so I can believe that you exist and that you are good to me. We can think about this passage, Luke 16. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not believe, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Think of this great miracle of resurrection. And yet those who say saw Lazarus raised from the dead, did they believe? Some had their faith strengthened, but there were many who disbelieved even more strongly after Lazarus was raised and wanted to kill him. So miracles themselves are no benefit apart from the word. I often think about this as I read through the Pentateuch. How many miracles did the people of Israel see before and after the Exodus? And that yet again and again and again they fall short in their faith. They mistrust God. They complain against God after all those miracles. You think, well, if I had manna every morning, I would never complain against God. But they did. How many miracles did the Pharisees see? They saw many miracles. They saw Jesus' power in what he said and what he did. And yet miracles tend more to harden the hearts of the unbelieving rather than soften them. So scripture is sufficient for us to be saved. But let me say, as I said in the past, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us for salvation. It's not enough to have the Scripture apart from the Holy Spirit, and that's God's work in us. You can teach somebody to read, and they can say all the words. They can even, they can even know the languages, the original languages. They could memorize Scripture. But unless the Holy Spirit does work in their heart, it's not going to change it. In terms, though, of the content of the truth we believe, Scripture is enough, and that's what sufficiency means. And scripture is the tool the Spirit uses to save us. So if you were to say, you must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, and if somebody says, no, you must also believe in this, or you must also do this, then we say, no, that's not in God's Word, I don't believe that. Everything I need to know about salvation is in God's Word. So, Scripture is sufficient. It's necessary and sufficient for us to be saved. It's also necessary and sufficient for us to be sanctified. Now, in a negative sense, Scripture is sufficient to help us in temptation. So, when we have a a sinful uh, temptation placed in front of us, as Jesus did, we can use Scripture against the devil when we are tempted. But also, in a positive sense... Scripture is sufficient to help us walk in holiness. So as we fight sin, we use God's word. As we walk forward in God's holiness, we we have his word sufficient for us. As Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. So Jesus in John 17 is saying, that I'm, as he prays, I'm leaving them soon. I won't be physically present where they can see me watch, watching what they're doing. And I want them to be holy. Sanctify them in your truth. I want them to be set apart for you. So, Father, make them holy. And what is the way for them and for us to be holy? To be holy as we understand and apply God's truth to us. That truth is God's word. And this may sound kind of flippant, but if it was good enough for Jesus that I be sanctified by understanding and applying God's word in my life... That it better be good enough for me. Jesus wanted his disciples to follow his truth, to know his truth, be sanctified in his truth, and that's good enough for me. And so I don't need to be searching far and wide for the secret of spiritual life. You ever see these uh, new books come out, and this has the key to the, the perfect prayer life for the, the best life of holiness, or whatever it might be. Um, Without this book, you're really missing something as a Christian. Well, we don't want to ever say that about any book but God's book. And so I better be searching here for what God wants me to learn. Now, this is not without help from brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly not without the Spirit of Christ, but I need to ground myself in God's Word. So God's Word is sufficient for us to be saved, for us to be sanctified. It's also sufficient for us to do God's work, and once again, we can look at Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. I know we keep going back here, but it's so critical for us all. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And when I see this, verse 17, I think about a soldier being prepared to, to go out and, and fight a battle. He needs all the right equipment. He needs to be trained, but he also needs the right equipment. And so, some of you who are in the military now or have been in the military, uh, the, the generals wrote don't just throw you out in the field and say, you know, go have fun. They've got to make sure that you have the right, the right weapons, the right equipment, the, the right gear in order for you to have success as you fight your battle. And so just as a, a soldier relies on his, uh, his supplies, his training, and his, his, his gear to prepare him for the battle ahead, we as Christians, especially those of us who are teaching God's word, need to equip ourselves ourselves with the word of God, equipped for every good work. We're sufficient to God's work when we know God's word. We are sufficiently equipped because the scriptures themselves are sufficient. Let me summarize what I've said about sufficiency in the words of the writer of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. You might remember this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say... Than to you he hath said. What more can he say than to you he hath said? There's nothing you need to know about God that's not in Scripture. There's nothing you need to know about salvation that's not in Scripture. There's nothing you need to know about being a faithful Christian that's not in Scripture. I could say it another way. Everything you need to know about God is in the Scripture, everything you need to know about salvation is in the Scripture. Everything you need to know about being a faithful Christian is in Scripture. Now, there may be helps, good books. We have books over here. I have many books in my library. Some I've even read. But these books, or a godly friend, or an insightful teacher, are only useful so far as they help you understand what the Scripture says and obey it more faithfully. I can also say that the sufficiency of Scripture doesn't mean that the Bible contains everything there is to know about God, or everything you want to know about God, it doesn't satisfy all our curiosity. Even God's perfect word could never be sufficient to say all there is to know about God. Remember Romans 11.33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So we can't even search out all there is to know about God and His ways, His judgments, in God's word, because the world itself could not contain all the things that God has, God is, and has done. There are also historical events we would love more details on. We could wish that we had a day by day account of Christ's life and ministry. As we've gone through the study on the life of Christ for many years, there's lots of places where we just have gaps. We don't know. We don't know how they're all arranged. But we have enough. John 20, verse 30 says, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And then at the end, John twenty one twenty five says, There are many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail. I suppose that even the world itself would not contain all the books that would be written. So there's much that Jesus did and said that could have been written, but they, it wasn't. There's much that God has done and said Uh, in the past that is not in his word now, but that's okay. He's given us enough. And we could wish sometimes that Bible writers would have had the prophetic insight to foresee every doctrinal difference that would ever be in church history and write letter after letter that would uh, let us know without any confusion what was right and what was wrong. But, of course, there's nothing so clear that someone won't won't misinterpret it, right? Right? But imagine the trouble that would have been avoided if Paul had just once written, don't baptize babies, or baptize babies. would collapse a bunch of denominational differences, wouldn't it? But we don't have that. Or think about Revelation 20, where the Apostle John sees Satan bound for a thousand years, and then speaks of those who came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now couldn't John have added, no, really, it's a thousand years Christ will literally reign on earth for a thousand years before the eternal state. Or, I'm speaking figuratively here, people. It's not a literal thousand years, and I'm speaking of a spiritual reign, not a physical one. Now, that idea has its attractions, but God providentially has not provided that detail for us. And that means that we have to do the hard work. That means that we have to search the scriptures daily to see if that's what it contains. To see if what we believe is spiritual to see if what I'm teaching is spiritual, or scripture, rather. To see if the the book from this Christian author or the speaker at that conference is agreeing with the Word of God. So let's close with a few questions, a few thoughts. It's a natural question to ask, if scripture is sufficient, what am I doing up here? Why, why am I teaching this stuff? Why aren't you all home reading the Bible just for yourselves? Or for one thing preaching and teaching are a couple of the means that God has ordained to communicate his truth to us. As in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, as it says in Nehemiah 8:8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So the preacher and teacher is to help listeners better understand what God has said. And beyond that, the idea that scripture alone is sufficient does not mean that we alone are sufficient with Scripture. Let me say that again. Scripture alone is sufficient, but that does not mean that we alone are sufficient with Scripture. We need each other. And not only do we need each other for encouragement and friendship, we need each other to help an understanding of God's Word. No Christian is so knowledgeable that they can't benefit from the insights of even the newest Christian. And Christians can even benefit sometimes from the insights of unbelievers. Now, we Christians act as doctrinal guardrails for each other. We have creeds, confessions, catechisms, commentaries, books on theology. Many of the resources give us a sanity check for what we are considering believing. Now, we are not intellectually up to the task of perfectly understanding Scripture on our own. We are not spiritually up to the task of perfectly understanding Scripture on our own. I'm sure... You've read the Bible at times and you see something you never saw before and you wonder, am I understanding this right? And you go to a trusted friend or a commentary or a confession or some other resource to determine whether anyone in the whole history of the Church has ever seen what you have seen. Now, you may find that it's a well-established view, something that Calvin preached himself, or you might discover to your dismay that so-and-so was branded a heretic in times past for believing that very thing. Maybe you want to rethink your position. Or if your insight is the first of its kind in 2,000 years of Christian history, I'd be concerned. If you have a brand new thought about Scripture, it's probably not new, or it probably isn't correct. But whatever your investigation turns up, these helps are truly only helpful as long as they are in line with scriptural teaching. So we want to make sure that as we think through the scriptures, that we understand it properly. As we think through scriptures, we check, th- think through our own, our own beliefs, that we check them against scripture. As we read other people's beliefs, we check them against scripture. But we must be very careful not to try to find sufficiency in ourselves. We never want to say that we are the, the, the sole or the, the highest uh, uh, understanding of God's truth in us. But that we we use each other as iron sharpens iron to understand God's word better. You even say I was wrong, or I was incomplete in my understanding. Thank you for helping me understand God's word better. Now, what are some implications of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, not everyone who says sola scriptura lives sola scriptura, but none of us does. You may have heard of practical atheists. Practical atheists. They say they believe in God, but they live their lives with a complete indifference to God and His Word. And There are practical non-Christians. They can put a check next to every part of the statement of faith, but they have not submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ and hardly give Him a thought from one day to the next. But i met people like this. Um, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What, what church do you go to? Well... In between churches. How long? 10, 20 years, I don't know, something like that. Um, Read your Bible? Not really. Pray? No. Uh, Do you care about walking a holy life? Mm, Sometimes. (laughs) I feel bad enough. People like that, who who say they're Christians, and yet have no interest in God's word, God's people, God's truth, you might wonder, are they truly Christians, or are they just saying they're Christians? In practicality in actuality, they are living like non-Christians. Now, if we say we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, do we deny that with the way we live? Well, first of all, we ask ourselves, or, or we tell ourselves, we must not sub- subtract from the Scriptures. We must not subtract from the Scriptures. Now, there are parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. They might make us squirm. They might prick our conscience we may be tempted to avoid those parts, to spend our time maybe in the historical books or find commands that are easier for us to keep. By doing that, we deny the sufficiency of Scripture. If my heart's being pricked, my conscience is being pricked by God's Word, and I quickly close it or move to something else that is easier for me to do by God's grace, I am practically living in a way that denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Another point is that we must not elevate our own traditions, customs, and preferences to the level of Scripture or even above it. I don't expect any of you are reading the Book of Mormon or the Quran for spiritual guidance, but we can be tempted in other ways to denigrate Scripture by elevating something else. We've looked in the past at Matthew 15, we we'll, won't we'll go in detail now, but remember the Pharisees had these elaborate rules about how you're to wash your hands, and the Pharisees were masters at adding to the Scriptures. But in doing so, they neglected or contradicted the clear teachings of God about, say, taking care of their parents. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with traditions or preferences. We all have them, and they're unavoidable. But we need to continually ask ourselves whether we are devoted to them or love them as much as Scripture, and whether we are invalidating the Word of God for the sake of our traditions. Third it should be an encouragement to us that if there is something God wants us to know to live our Christian lives, it's in here. Some Christians, unfortunately, spend a lot of time searching outwards for answers, trying to find the magic trick that will enable them to thrive in their Christian walk. Um, A new book, a new uh, podcast, a new blog, even a a tweet. If I get the right tweet, those, those few characters might change my Christian life. Or some Christians might search inwards, listening for a word from God that's just for them, that will zap them to a new level of Christian experience. Lord, just speak to me, please. And they want an audible voice or an internal voice. But they neglect the word of God right in front of them. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Matthew Henry said, "Though God has kept much of His counsel secret, yet there is enough revealed to satisfy and save us. He has kept back nothing that is profitable for us, but that only which it is good for us to be ignorant of." So some of you don't know, it's not in God's word. It's okay. It may pique your interest. It may even annoy you that you don't get to know that thing, but if it's in God's word, it's enough for you to grow in grace one final point. We need to bring Scripture to bear on every area of life, whether it be work, home, finances, parenting, decision-making, everything. And so, do you make a conscious, prayerful effort to go to the Bible when you think through what you will and won't do? Or do you just trust your own judgment? And again, I don't want to minimize the importance of helps as we search the Scriptures. John MacArthur said this, Am I writing off every source of extra-biblical help as utterly worthless? Are there no sp- beneficial insights to be gained by looking at the observations of sociologists and psychologists? Are there no helpful principles church leaders might learn from secular management experts? Are there no techniques pastors can legitimately employ from a specialist empirical observations of church growth? Is there nothing to be learned outside the Bible itself that can be helpful or useful in the church? Useful, perhaps. Necessary? No. If they are necessary, they are in Scripture. Otherwise, God has left us short of what we need, and that would be unthinkable. Human ingenuity occasionally intersects with truth. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. But that is poor performance with Scripture, compared to Scripture, rather, which is true in all its assertions and sufficient for the life and growth of the Church. And I would add that we must subject all these helps to the scrutiny of Scripture and only rely on them as far as they agree with God's Word. So as we finish this series on the Scriptures let's commit ourselves to prayerfully building our lives and our church on the Word of God by God's grace and by His Spirit. If the Bible is God's authoritative, clear, breathed-out revelation, if it's completely true and without error, if it has the power to save and to sanctify, why would we want to build on anything else? Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that You have not left us without a witness in this world. You have been so good through men and women throughout the centuries, to first communicate your word, then to, uh, to transmit your word through copy after copy, year after year, a faithful Christian after faithful Christian, those who, who even died for the sake of the scriptures, who died to try to get the Bible into the hands of us even this day. We are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your insights into your word. We're grateful for your spirit. We're grateful for many helps with other believers who can come alongside us and help us understand your word. May we use these means, but always evaluate them by the light of what your scripture truly says. We know we are insufficient to this task, but we pray that by your spirit you would help us to grow day by day as those who know and live the scriptures for your glory